This is a crowd podcast. Hello, friends of fire. Now, before we start the podcast, just a quick message from Katie and me. We had an absolutely fascinating conversation with our guest for this week's episode on South Korea, but some of the content might be upsetting to some listeners. We hope you enjoy it all the same, and we hope you get as much out of this one as we did. Harry Truman, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, Television, North Korea, South Korea. Well, that makes sense. Yes. Hello again, our fellow disciples of Billy. It's episode 13 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast, Katie, that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now. I'm Tom Fordyce. You're Katie Puckley. Yes, I am. Katie, pumped? I am a little pumped. Uh, It could have been something I ate earlier. But today we're doing South Korea because, of course, we've covered North Korea, but we're looking at different aspects of it, aren't we? Yes, we are. We sometimes have to do this with Billy, don't we? We have to... He harps on certain things. He gets a bee in his bonnet and he harps on a topic. And so we can't just cover it neatly in one episode. Who are we, Katie, to, you know, steer away from where Billy wants to take us? We have agreed at the start of this madcap adventure to go hand in hand wherever Billy wants us to go. We've thrown our lot in a little foolhardily, somewhat recklessly, um, I think ultimately to our benefit and hopefully, dear listener, to yours as well. Um, we will, in the final Korean episode, Pum and John, we'll be checking out the whole ins and outs of the Korean War, uh, how it came to be, you know, the Soviets versus the Americans, all that kind of thing. But today with South Korea, we're looking at an aspect of uh, the conflict, which has to do with an atrocity that uh, got a little brushed under the carpet, comfort women. These are uh, the women that were dragooned into sexual slavery uh, by the Japanese. And this was something that happened to women both in North and South Korea. Of course, it was going on from World War II. And it's unfortunately the story that happens uh, across wars throughout time. That's just kind of one of those uh, great uh, perks of uh, conflict where there's horrible atrocities enacted on the people who are overrun. Um, And today, we're lucky to have as our expert an author who is a Writers Guild of Great Britain award winner for her first novel. The novel is called White Chrysanthemum, and her name is Mary Lynn Brocht. Welcome, Mary. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us, because we have a lot of questions. The topic is grim, but you have, I won't say firsthand knowledge, you have secondhand knowledge of it because your family is from South Korea. Is that right? Born and raised. Met my father there, who's American, and then I was raised in America. And presumably your dad was in the armed forces over in South Korea? Yes, he was with the U.S. military. Right. So that's just like a classic uh, Cold War story, I guess. Oh, it was during Vietnam War. You know, so many American soldiers kind of their pit stop was South Korea and then they would go to to Vietnam from there. Now, your mother grew up in South Korea. She was born right after the Korean War? Yeah, that the fall right after 1953. And what was life like for her growing up post-war in South Korea? Well, for her, she was actually quite lucky because her father, he ended up escaping from the World War II because he was just a child. He was only 13. And 
his sister was older and she was considered quite beautiful at the time. Um, so she was able to bring food to him and hide him up a mountain. And she got past sort of the Japanese guards because she was beautiful. And there was a Japanese <laughs> soldier who was in love with her oh. um, and let her go up the mountain and feed him. So he never had to go into the military. So he didn't have any issues with his, you know, he was strong. He grew up fine. So at the end of World War II, he finished his high school. And then he went to this Air Force military college. He was very highly educated. And when he came out, he was able to buy a farm. So she grew up post-1953 with food, land, a farm, a house, sisters, everything was perfect. Um, and this was not the norm because, I mean, <laughs> I've seen footage of Korea, both North Korea and South Korea. Uh, it's not there. It doesn't exist after the war. I mean, it was flattened by bombs, just unutterably destroyed. So for your family to have their own little sanctuary would have been remarkable. Yeah, and also because, I mean, South Korea is mostly agrarian anyway, so on the sides of mountains that you could grow the patties and it was fine. Whereas I think it was the north was more industrialized, it had more of the factory, so that just completely decimated them. I mean, it didn't last long because my mother's mother uh, became ill. Her two younger sisters died from the same illness, and then her mother died, and in that time, her father remarried because it's you can have second and third wives at that time. And well, at the same time, concurrent. Yeah. So he did not wait. He left and had a new wife. Ah. Um, had two sons straight away. And so that was his new family. So then she was left on her own, a teenage girl in the middle of nowhere. So she went to the city. She went to Seoul and started a new life all by herself. So much initiative for her to do that, so brave. She is still like that. She's a very strong woman. <laughs> Incredible. So this farm girl who's just abandoned by her father um, makes her way to the big city. What did she do with herself? How did she get by? It's hilarious. She worked at a wig factory making 1960s, you know, wigs for Americans. <laughs> so big bouffant. Beehives. Yeah, yeah Beehives. totally. Like, Paul-style yeah. <laughs> drag queen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what else has she told you about, about life in South Korea after the war? Because I'd assume, Katie, in that sort of very simpli simplified narrative we have, where at North Korea the bad guys and South Korea the good guys, I'd assume that South Korea was, was quite liberal after the war and that North Korea had gone down this authoritarian route. But yeah. it sounds like it was almost as severe a regime south of the 38th parallel. Yeah, because it's interesting because you have the, you know, Confucian, like historical upbringing, but then you also have the patriarchal system where women are basically not as important as men and boys. But you also have a simplified way of living. So they didn't need the electricity and they didn't need all of the things that they had in the cities. So the social structure was simple. They didn't fight against the government in the rural areas um, until you started going to the towns and in the cities where people were educated and could read about what the freedoms were and everything. So, I mean, looking at each decade of Korean history, it's fueled with fire and political upheavals and massacres and everyone was being sent to prison if they were suspected to be communist. It was very McCarthy-esque. So it wasn't peaceful at all. <laughs> so it seems like Sigmund Rhee, even though he was like our guy because the Americans installed him, he was just as hardcore as the North Korean leader, just uh, had a different ethos. Yeah, but in a completely different way, 
a lot of it's rumor and conjecture. You don't know what's true and what's false. But if you look at all of his elections, someone died for him to win. <laughs> or he sort of won and then his opponent died. Um, they had re-education camps for communists. So it wasn't peaceful at all. People were afraid. It was the difficult place to grow up. I would say. So when your mother, as long as she was uh, on the farm, down on the farm, Mm -hmm. life was easy. But when you get to the big city and you get in the mix of what's going on and you become more aware of what's in the world, you're probably more in danger of uh, stepping outside the lines and getting in trouble. Did she ever feel personally that her activities were curtailed or that she could be seen as the enemy? She never mentioned anything like that. I think most of her struggles were sort of women's struggles, so not getting paid the same wage, um, and then having to deal with, like, a boss who is in charge of you suddenly, and do you have power against his advances, and things like that that women still have to deal with. So that's most of what she was navigating as a teenage girl in, in Seoul. What we're getting here, Katie, because we can sometimes see these little links and tendrils between Billy's different lyrics and subjects, can't we? And Korea, the situation in Korea is almost, if you were to describe one situation that epitomises the Cold War, it's Korea, isn't it? It's that clash of ideologies. It's the fact that America is supporting a leader who, on the face of it, is as bad as the leader they're opposing, but he's their guy. But it's all happening thousands of miles from America. Yeah, so it's not anything that we have to like worry about too much. I mean, that was one of the big problems of the Korean War anyway, was that Americans, I think, just had World War II fatigue. And so then the idea that, oh, we have another war we're going to get into now, and let's just throw a lot of bombs at it. You know, there was even some sense that, oh, maybe we'll just like continue the war into China and throw a nuclear bomb at it and, and that, getting a little bomb happy. Uh, but yeah, it definitely was one of those things that out of sight, out of mind, we didn't have to worry about it too much. And it turns out when you're not looking at things closely, that's when all this really terrible stuff can go on. And and the worry also that this peninsula is going to be split forever and their country won't be united. And that was on everyone's mind. There were rise, uprisings like the Jeju massacre. That was a huge Jeju uprising because they wanted to make sure that Korea remained whole and remained one country because that arbitrary line thrown across the peninsula had had no reason to be there. And it separated families. It separated bloodlines and ancestral homes forever. And Korea had been one country for how long? A long time. Always, yes. Always, since forever. Since before Japan became an actual real country. Well, there you go. yeah. Yeah. And tell us about the Jeju uprising. What happened there? Well, that was... Depending on how you how you look at it, the, the Korean government looked at them as communist sympathizers. And this um, was a, lo- a little island just off of Korea. Yes, the south south of the peninsula. Um, and this is where one of the characters in my book is a Henyo diver. So they're they're well known on that island for having divers, women divers, women divers. Yes. Um, and I think because they had this very strong matriarchal community, they were very involved in politics as well. Um, and so they went against the government. They wanted uh, total autonomy of the country. They wanted the Americans out. Um, and they were crushed. They were just massacred. They were killed in huge grave sites, just dumped in bodies. I mean, there's there's a story where they don't know how many bodies are buried under the tarmac of the airport, um, oh. Jeju Airport. 
Um, and this was by South Korea. This was a South Korean initiative. Yes, by their police force. Mm. And it was denied, and you couldn't talk about it. Survivors couldn't talk about it, or they would be put in prison. Their families could be put in prison. They were tortured to recant. So it stayed a sort of hidden story, another one that everyone knew happened that we did not talk about um, until the 90s. And growing up, as I did, just always with North Korea and South Korea being two separate countries— It didn't even occur to me until you just said it, Mary, how psychically this is really difficult for Koreans that, you know, it's just really weird. Think about, I mean, I know you, I'm looking over at Tom who lives in the North, even though you don't sound like you do. No, I'm not originally from the North. Not originally from the North, but, you know, there is that kind of playful thing where like Northerners think of themselves in Britain as completely different from the soft Southerners. But in Korea, that sense that, like you say, bloodlines, families, farms, you know, neighbors uh, are just completely arbitrarily divided, that must leave such a psychic scar. And and Koreans don't even consider it North and South, really. Like my mother growing up, she's never said South Korea. I never heard the term South Korea. It was always in Korea. I'm going to Korea. My friend came back from Korea. The first time someone, you know, asked me where my mom was from, I said Korea. They're like, North or South? I'm like, that's not even a question. It's just Korea. (laughs) So I had to kind of understand in in the rest of the world, North and South are completely distinct entities, but not in the minds of Koreans. You don't always get a sense, Mary, when you go to South Korea of the history, because physically a lot of that history has been destroyed. The cities feel like they've been built from the ground up in the last 30 years. If you go to Seoul or Daegu, you don't have those ancient buildings that connect you to the past. So for people in Korea today, is there still that connection with that time? Or does it feel like that the world has begun afresh? The huge connection. I mean, the the historical part of like tradition and and history, it's it's huge in the Korean psyche. I mean, the the buildings, the palaces are all still in Seoul. So if you go to the four corners, you have all the the four gates, you know, the North Gate and the East Gate and the South Gate. So they're all still there. And the city kind of came up around it. Um, And a lot of the kind of bomb traditional houses, they were rebuilt. So you could see what they would have looked like. Um, It was funny. So I went with my mother... Oh, must have been 2002 when we went. Um, we went to Korea, and I went with her for like a month. And we started in Seoul, which was like crazy because it was the biggest city I'd been to. And it was just buzzing. But we went to, you know, all of the different palaces as well. So you felt like you were in the middle of nowhere because they're still open and they're still grand, you know, dusty paths everywhere. Um, but then we went and took a cab out into the countryside. So we went to the village where she grew up. And the roads just sort of got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was just like this dirt road. And the cab just dropped us off in the middle of nowhere. And I thought, where are we? And why is he dropping us off? And I have a suitcase. And how many miles do I have to walk? And she was like, this is the bus stop. (laughs) And I just thought, there's not even a pole to tell the bus where to stop. (laughs) But it's like no progress in the countryside. It It was so bizarre for me coming from like suburbia. And then sure enough, you know, 30 minutes later, a bus came along, picked us up. It was packed full of old women, let us off in front of her um, village. And they walked up a little path. And then there it was. There was a house where she had grown up. And we walked into the pasture in the back, a little bit up the mountain. And there was the grave where her mother was buried. I mean, it was just all still there. Now, 
Your book, White Chrysanthemum, uh, deals with the story of two sisters who were separated during the World War II Japanese occupation of Korea. And you did a lot of research into the so-called comfort women for this uh, book. Can you talk about this term, comfort women, because it's such a an odd term. It sounds oddly benign, but it's not benign, is it? Right. Um, it's a term made up by the Japanese military. They were really sexual slaves at military brothels. I mean, it's quite a long term. Um, they reject the term comfort women because they were expected to comfort the military the Japanese soldiers in a sense. Um, I think in Korea today they're called grandmothers because it gives them a little bit more status, um, recognizes that they, are, they survived what they went through. Um, so they've rejected completely comfort women. But to talk about them, it just to make it easier for people to understand what subject we're talking about. We do kind of do quotes and call them comfort women. So to begin with, there was this idea that, okay, Japan's going to send, send the boys off to the battlefront. We want to keep them sweet and, uh, you know, hopefully not go on a rampage because, of course, that is a classic way that locals get terrorized. There was the rape of Nanking uh, that happened in China in the 30s when uh, a group of Japanese soldiers went wild and were basically go- doing door-to-door raping mm-hmm. of women and children. Um, and of course, thousands and thousands were massacred as well. So I understand that the idea was, hey, if we just set up these brothels, this will kind of take the heat off the local women. Was that sort of the case? Sort of, because they they had these military brothels even before. Um, as soon as they sort of set up a military outpost outside of Japan, they would have a brothel. Um, I think by the time the Sino-Japanese War broke out, they didn't have enough Japanese women who would come to the brothels, so they just started taking colonists um, straight from Korea because they had annexed it. Uh, so they just had ready women, and they just forcefully took them. Or trick them in some cases. Trick them, yeah, because like the whole mobilization effort of the military, like part of it was trying to create like the war machine that they had for World War II. Um, and part of it was factories. So they were shipping out Korean men, Korean boys to fill positions in factories. So when they told a girl, oh, we're going we're gonna to have you work as a nurse or we're going to have you work in a factory doing something for, for the men that are there, they believed them. Sure, it seems plausible. Yeah. So they got in the car and they went or their parents sold them or a relative or, you know, or they just kidnapped. So many different stories depending on the mm. survivor you spoke to afterwards. What sort of numbers are we talking here, Mary? What sort of scale was this going on? Well, the estimate that, I guess the the largest estimate is 200,000 Korean women. Um, But that's not including the Chinese and all of the other sort of invaded nations. So you had the The Philippines, the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyone from the Chinese to the Filipinos to the Koreans, they were sort of seen as subhuman. So sticking a bunch of women into... A brothel just it didn't register as wrong at all. It was just kind of part of their social register, I guess. The term used was units of war supplies yeah. to refer to these sexual slaves. Um, they were seen as so-called female ammunition, and uh, one Japanese army doctor testified that they were also referred to as public toilets, literally just things to be used and abused. Yeah, which is really difficult to read when you're reading the survivors' testimonies and the stories that they've had because they were treated just as badly as well. I mean, so many of them just died. They they didn't have a chance to even 
come back home and tell her stories. So mm. it, just the treatment was horrific. What were conditions like in these brothels? Oh, they're really horrible, actually. Um, when I went to Seoul, just outside, they have the house of sharing, and they've kind of put together like a mock brothel, so you can kind of walk through to see what it would be like. Oh, it's like old town Williamsburg or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> terrible. It is horrifying. Um, yeah. they, they even have sort of on um, display an actual condom, military condom, that one of the Japanese soldiers had saved and sent to them. <laughs> so you can see it. Oh, wow. It's just small. It's cramped. Sometimes you'd have a whole bunch of girls in one room separated by curtains. Um, you have maybe a bowl of water to clean up in between patrons. And like how many times a day would these women be brutalized? Upwards of 10 plus. There's no real cap. It was more of a time limit. So each soldier got a certain number of time depending on their rank. And did rank make a difference in other ways as well? Were there certain women who were kept for the officers and certain women who were who were there for the foot soldiers? Well, yeah. Anytime they got a new woman or a new girl in because they were considered to be virgins or, or at least more pure or cleaner than someone who'd been there for quite a while, the officers got first dibs. It's very distressing. The more I was reading about this and exposing myself to the horrors of this, you know, not only is it terrible the fact that these women were being raped and brutalized, but also, you know, it's quite sadistic. It wasn't like a sense of like, oh, you know, the Japanese soldier wants a cuddle. You know, you know, he's like kicking back in between battles. Uh, these women were tortured in in some respects and and killed. And then even after they were killed, their bodies were mutilated. And, and uh, that's the level of savagery that I find. I just can't get my head around that. Yeah, it was very difficult for me researching it. I think by the end of sort of that three-month period, I was quite depressed because I had to research not only what the Japanese soldiers did to these women, yeah. but what they did to this the civilian population at large with the, with the Chinese. I mean, the, the massacre at Nanjing was one where you read some of the things that were done. It's unbelievable. Just wholesale executions. Yeah, but just torture and then execution. They tortured the people Mm. and then executed them. Right. Let's just take a little breather there and have some ads and we'll be back in a moment. This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. That feeling. That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. I do remember my mother telling me about Comfort Women when I was a child, um... She was born in 1923. I was the youngest out of four, so she was a much older parent at the time. And she had grown up uh, some years in China and also in the Philippines. Her father was an army colonel. And I remember her telling me about this. Now, she would have been living in the Far East in the 30s. So this was happening news at the Mm -hmm. time. And... When she talked to me about it, it was the first I'd heard of it. And I, to this day, I don't ever recall hearing any consequences other than I understand that Japan uh, takes exception to the fact that it was as bad an atrocity 
that people make it out to be. So I understand that between uh, Korea and Japan, there's still a bit of tug of war about how bad it was. Yeah, because in the 1930s and 40s, I mean, even the 30s when it was happening, it didn't make the news. It was all censored. They said, no, it's just rumor. It's not true. It's communist propaganda. It's the Chinese saying things. None of this happened. So this denial had started very early on, um, and it continued. So they're they're continually denying it, although there was the Kono statement that came out like right after the first um, comfort women came forward. And when was um, that? It was early 90s. Um, and he wasn't the prime minister, but he was a high official. And he said, you know, we they had this big investigation. They decided there was evidence that it happened. He conceded it did happen. It was a military mobilization effort to get women into military brothels. And he ad- admitted it all. Um, but that was it. They didn't have like a formal government apology. They weren't going to put it into their history text. And what about reparations? The government opened a fund, but it was all donated funds from Japanese. So civilians donated money, Um, but nothing came from the government. So it was a way to sort of acquiesce without actually taking complete right. um, responsibility. Sorry, not sorry. And I'm wondering about the taboo uh, in Korea itself, because you, you'd think about uh, the culture, I imagine, is, is quite conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Confucian nation, so it's very, it's about, you know, young women have to be virgins and it, purity is at a premium. So I can't imagine that there's, unfortunately, a lot of public sympathy for women who've been brutalized. I mean, at the beginning, there were just there's not even a way to come forward and say it. I mean, I think the end of World War II happened so quickly that it was just about transfer of power. I mean, all of the focus was on getting the Japanese out of Korea, getting our Koreans back into Korea, and setting up a government that will keep the peninsula united. Well, at the very same time, you had the Soviets coming in and the Americans coming in and saying, no, we're going to split it up, we're going to do this, we're going to take over. You don't get to be in charge of your whole country. So women's rights and things that happened to women, I mean, it wasn't even discussed. It was not a topic. But then as well, the women who did manage to come back home, there was a a huge amount of shame after what happened to them because not only were they not virgins, they had physical marks on their bodies. They couldn't conceal what happened to them. Mm. Some of them had terrible illnesses, sexually transmitted illnesses. And they were barren. They couldn't, they weren't fertile anymore. They'd been so brutalized over the years. Right. Some of them, and they were, they had things shoved up them that had torn open bits that just never healed properly. So they were dealing with physical trauma, mental trauma, and then societal trauma because they couldn't speak about it. They couldn't tell their families. And it wasn't until sort of the end of everything. So the end of the, what Sigmund Rhee presidency, but really dictatorship, and then the end of the coup that happened, so the military dictatorship. So it was 1988, I think, the first time women's groups got to come forward and start talking about what happened in the past because they lifted censorship. So the press could now have freedom. They can now look at things that were printed from the colonial times. And then people started discussing it. And that's the only reason the first comfort woman came forward. Suddenly there were ears ready to listen. There were women talking about it. Yes. And there was a place to go. Seems extraordinary, Katie, that it took that long, that it's taken 50 years for even the stories to be told, not anything to be done about it, not any comfort being given to these so-called comfort women, but just even for it to be acknowledged. 
Yeah, it's uh, sorry. It's that same old story for for women. It's just as you were saying, Mary. They're at the back of the queue when when things got to get done, and I guess part of the problem as well is uh, Japan, which are you know, now sort of seen in the global order as being the good guys, they hardly want to come own up to this horrible behavior, which I guess every country has a variation on this theme. You hear about sexual slavery and mass rapes as a tool of destruction and war. But, um, yeah, it it doesn't, doesn't reflect well in the Japanese, for sure. But what's interesting is it's it's sort of like the, the Germans – took full responsibility for what happened in World War II. They've made reparations. They've made amends. Mm -hmm. They teach about what happens in their schools. That's true, yeah. And so much time has passed that they're able to actually move beyond this. No one looks at the German government and sees Nazis. It's just not how it is. Right. They look at the American government. Well, (laughs) well, the old Trump government, yes. (laughs) But, I mean, if if the Japanese just could move on without saying, we're never going to talk about it again, we're just going to ignore it, we're not going to teach our kids about it, then it wouldn't be such a huge contentious issue. We would move on because we would accept that the current government is not that old government. They agree that this history happened, and then that's the end of it, really. So what effect does this have on the psyche of South Korea, Mary? For women who are growing up in the post-war period and after the Korean War ends in 1953, is there is there almost a subtext that people are aware of that's going on before it is publicly acknowledged in the 80s? Not really. It's it's there are so much secrets, like secretive things happening in Korea itself anyway, because they were afraid of the communist threat um, that everyone was sort of under the government eye and. Like my mother, she kind of said, well, everyone knows. Everyone knows it happened. We just don't talk about it. Anything bad with Korean history, they know it, but they don't talk about it. It's just known it happened because it's dangerous to talk about. How is it commemorated in South Korea today, Mary? Well, every Wednesday they have what's called the Wednesday demonstrations, and it's right in front of the Japanese embassy. And they have it's, – it's essentially a citizen protest but they're not allowed to call it a protest, so it's a demonstration. And they bus in people to see it, but they also have, I mean, it's it's not like a protest that you would see like in Britain, for instance. There's singing sometimes, there's dancing, um, there's a speech. If a comfort woman is, or a grandmother feels well enough, she will attend as well and they'll have her say something. And And who is participating? Is it men and women? Yes, very mixed. Um, a lot of tourists. I've gone twice, and so they've. There's always tourists. And, and there's a statue there of a comfort woman. Yes, so there's a statue. They call it Pyeongwabi. So it's a peace statue, and it's of a girl who's sitting in a chair, and next to her is an empty chair. So sort of indicate all of the women who were lost. And I think 2015 they had an agreement between the the previous president who was ousted for crimes against state. And this is the president of Korea, you're saying? Yeah. So the president of Korea and Japan in 2015 had made this huge agreement that they were going to, for once and for all, put an end to the comfort women issue. They were going to throw a lot of money at it. And then they were never allowed to talk about it again. And they had to remove the statue. So (laughs) all of these conditions in order to end this kind of contentious debate between the countries. Um, So I actually went to see the statue because I thought they're going to take it away. And I, I want to... 
see what it was that they were so angry about because they are putting these statues up in California and New Jersey. Um, there's one in Germany. So they're, they're trying to have monuments to women who have lost their lives through wars that they had no, they couldn't vote for the war. They they had no say. They couldn't fight in the war. They couldn't fight in the war. They couldn't protect themselves in the this war. This sounds like a, a pretty good initiative. You yes. know, why not, these are people who should be commemorated. And, and also, they aren't. They and then never. I like the trolling of just putting it right in front of the Japanese embassy as well. Yeah. It's a good touch. And what was interesting is so I actually go and I'm I'm looking at the statue and I had seen, you know, you can go on Google Maps and you can kind of see what the street looks like. And the Japanese embassy was this huge red brick building and it was gone. And so I was so confused because I thought, well, where did the building go? And it, because of these protests, they demolished that building and they built the Japanese embassy far away from the sidewalk. <laughs> oh, so that's like a double troll, troll back at you. Like, we're just going to move our building. Go ahead and See your it. statue. Where have we gone? <laughs> it was very interesting. But they had students at that time sleep round the clock to protect the statue, to keep it from being taken away in the middle of the night, which happened in the Philippines with their statue. Mm. Japan had put pressure on the Philippine government really? to remove the statue. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, that's so many people who perished. And they're just, it's a silent little blip. You know, you think about, you know, the ridiculous things that we hear, you know, there's protests against statues, there's statues to war criminals and slavers, and uh, <laughs> the statue that gets taken away are victims of mass atrocities. Doesn't seem fair. Is there still any lingering anti-Japanese sentiment in, in South Korea? Um, I think it's faded a lot, but yes, of course. It's like any, some people still feel it, some people don't, some people are think, you know, bygones. Um, like for, with my mother, we owned nothing made in Japan until the late 90s. My mom bought a Toyota. First time ever. She came home with a Toyota 4Runner. We're like, wow, this is progress. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite significant to me, that, Katie, because that just shows the lingering after effects of something that, okay, it wasn't talked about, but it's clearly left those enormous scars. I remember moving to Britain in the 80s and um, being confused that there was this like anti-French sentiment in amongst British people that somehow had something to do with some distant time in the past, some sort of and, and also like jokes about Germans and don't mention the war, faulty towers. Um, but I mean, that just seemed a little more playful and silly, although, of course, we were bombed to smithereens over here in the UK during the war. So... Maybe it isn't so silly after all. Did you get anti? You got quite a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment in the U.S., didn't you? In the aftermath of the Second World War, particularly from soldiers who'd returning from that theater of war. Well, when you think about the internment camps where Japanese Americans were just willy-nilly just bundled into camps, I have a friend whose father grew up in one for a few years when he was a child, and that was absolutely disgusting. How would you? sum up the legacy of South Korea? After having researched what happened politically, I, I would say it would be sort of the template for Western powers of what not to do at the end of a huge war. They did everything wrong. They forever mutilated a country. And I would say study it, look at it, and see, you know, the next time you have to deal with the aftermath of a huge war, don't do what you did at this point. 
So Mary, for a bit of further reading for us all, is there a particular book you'd recommend? I mean, aside from her book, Don't apart Forget... From, apart from Mary's Outstanding White Chrysanthemum. Yeah, there's a really great book that came out recently. It's called Kim Ji Young, Born 1982. Actually, I read it and I just thought this is you know, the experience of a regular Korean woman growing up in South Korea, a modern woman, and what she's having to deal with, with family, in-laws, work, and everything, to give you a sense of what it, what it is like there. And it kind of came out right in the sort of the beginning of the Me Too movement that also swept over South Korea as well. So it's a really great book if you want to learn a little bit more. Perfect. Thank you, Mary. There's many things I love about this podcast, Katie, where sometimes it's the fact that you learn a lot of stuff you didn't know before. Sometimes it's like today and a bit like Red China. It's a deep dive into one particular aspect because you can't do the whole of South Korea in the time we've got. No. But we've done a deep dive into something I knew absolutely nothing about and now I won't be able to forget. It's so interesting how something that happened so many years ago, what, 70 years ago or something, or longer, has left such a scar. So to the fact that uh, it's still a bone of contention between the Japanese government and the South Korean government, like we're not going to mention, not even going to mention this kind of thing. I mean, I guess it goes on with everything, you know, the Armenian genocide, Turkey doesn't want to acknowledge that. Um, I mean, that is obviously not going to be a very flattering uh, reflection on certain countries. Yeah, no one likes putting their hands up for genocide, do they? <laughs> no, no, it's not really a, a crowd pleaser. Mm. I thought about something else as well when we finished talking to Mary. Um, the reason I went to Korea was because the World Athletics Championships were there in Daegu in 2011. And it reminded me that the Football World Cup in 2002 was jointly hosted by South Korea and Japan. Ah, the great uh, healing powers of sports. Well, that's what regimes use, isn't it? Re- regimes yeah. will use sporting events as a way of showing their better side to the world. Right. You know, team, that, team spirit. Team spirit. And that was the first time that a World Cup had been held in more than one country. So it must have had, for both those nations, there must have been massive repercussions and, and a sense, if you were from Korea or Japan, of what tacitly you were doing there that you were saying to the world, we are now standing together to bring the world to us. So therefore we have changed from where we were. Oh, it's so complex, isn't it? It's a real minefield because as Mary was saying, uh, her mother grew up in that culture knowing that all of these terrible things had happened, but also equally knowing why even talk about it because we already know about it. So when you have a sporting event like the one that you attended, um, you just understand that uh, shit went down and best not to dwell on it. Yeah. So we always ask ourselves, Katie, has Billy done well here or has Billy made a boo-boo? I'm wondering, I can't see how Billy would have known where we would end up with this one. And initially I was thinking North Korea, South Korea is a nice little cadence for Billy. Yes. Do you know what though, having done both in the last two episodes, I'm super glad that's where Billy took us. Yeah, Billy took us here. I don't know if he gets the credit. I think I think Mary Lynn Brock gets the credit for uh, taking us to where we all ended up. But that's just the serendipity of we didn't start the fire. You know, there's some dark places in humankind. You know, there's another podcast. If you're already if you're in the mood for a uh, doom and gloom, death and destruction, and a, a, a twist, 
I would very much advise Murder in House 2. It's the shocking, riveting inside story of one of the greatest cover-ups in U.S. military history. You know, they're all at it, aren't they? There's always some sort of mischief afoot with regimes, and America's no exception. Uh, You thought you knew about the Iraq War. You thought you knew who the good guys were. Well, think again. Check out Murder in House 2 wherever you grab your podcasts. And Katie, next week, we go for one of the big hitters, a star who everyone knows whether they're around at the time or not, and that is Norma Jean. Norma Jean, Marilyn Monroe. People want to be her. People want to look like her. People want to wear her clothes. People wanted to look up her skirt. Wanted to look up her skirt. Uh, Not everybody got a chance to do that, but some people did. A lot of people wanted to marry her. Even the people who were married to her, who divorced her, then wanted to marry her again. I know. Insatiable. She is a cultural icon, and there's no doubt Billy did the right thing by putting her in the song. But we're going to find out all about her next week. Onwards we march. March. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.